Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Um, okay, so a couple things. We're going to spend the next several weeks, several months reading the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is wonderful. I want to recommend a book to all of you. This is a book by a guy named Matthew Schlimm, S-C-H-L-I-M-M. Um, Matthew Schlimm, and it's called This Strange and Sacred Scripture, Wrestling with the Old Testament and Its Oddities. And I recommend it to you. Um, I've only read about half of it, but the half I have read is really good, and I'm looking forward to reading the rest. And it's a pretty accessible um, introduction and uh, orientation to some of the common questions that arise when people read the Old Testament uh, carefully and in a, in a systematic way. So uh, if you're reading, if you're going to be reading along with Long Story Short, you should feel free to check this out if you want to go above and beyond. Um, also, if you're thinking, hey, I bought three books, but three books isn't enough. How can I buy a fourth book? This is also a great option, okay? Not required, just recommended. Um, okay. I think that's it for housekeeping remarks, so I'm gonna dive in here. Um, let's open with prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this gathering. We thank you for this wonderful time that is set aside to study your word in Holy Scripture. We ask, uh, Father, that you would send the spirit of your son, who is the living word among us in this time. Help us to understand the Bible's message and um, live it out. We ask this in his name, amen. Okay, so um, tonight we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2. So it's a pretty long selection of scriptures. Um, we're going to try and break it down. So I want us to look at Genesis 1 first, and then if we have time and we do well, we'll look at Genesis 2. So um, let's pull out our Bibles and start by looking at Genesis 1. Um, what I'm going to do is just read all of this account of the seven days. If you were in church on this past Sunday, you got to hear all of it, but that's okay. We, it's the kind of account that bears hearing more than once. So we're gonna do that again. And then I want you to, um, and then we have a little exercise that'll get you talking to each other, okay? So I'm just gonna read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the lesser light to rule the day and the lesser, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. 
and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude and on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. Okay, so what I want you to do is turn to someone next to you and talk about the questions you have on this passage. So that, that was a long passage, there's a lot there. What stands out to you, what strikes you, and particularly, what do you wonder about? What do you wanna know? Um, so take a minute and turn to a neighbor and discuss for a minute or two, and then we'll come back together and talk about it as a big group. Okay, so why don't we come back together um, I'd love to hear what you talked about with your partner, and this can either be the, the question that you had, the insight that you had, or because we're all shy Presbyterians, you should feel free to volunteer the person you spoke with and say, oh, I, I think Jim had a really good idea. Jim, you tell him what you said, because it interested me, okay? Um, so who heard something interesting or had an interesting question? I, I didn't hear anything, but I, I'm sure that Karen Van Eyten had something. <laughs> it's really fun Very to do that, thoughtful. isn't it? Yeah. Well, Jim Rose had an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his was good. He said, um, so God created, um, created all of this, okay, and then um, created male and female. Mm -hmm. And so where then does it come? We are these Caucasians these white Caucasian people, so where did people of all the different colors and all the other ethnicities, where did this come? Sure, where does cultural diversity come from? That's a really interesting question. So Semitic people, Middle Eastern people, uh, typically have more pigment than most of us in this room. So biblically speaking, we're, pro if, we're probably the weird ones, um, which is a helpful thing to remember, right? Um, I think, I think Genesis is probably not thinking about that question, right? So, it, which doesn't mean it's a bad question. It's just, 
it's not the sort of question that Genesis is trying to answer. I, some of it comes up a little bit when you get to the Tower of Babel. Um, that's not for several more chapters. I mean, that, that's sort of a, you know, a story about where languages come from and you start to get into cultural diversity there. M maybe, depending on how you read that passage, but I'm not sure it's there. Yeah, Frank. I always thought people in Africa, where they got sun all the time, were very dark skinned. People in a northern climates are very fair. Yeah. And I thought over the eons, the amount of sun you got determined whether you were light or medium or dark. You know, I really don't know the answer to that question. I don't, I don't know, you know, I know it has something to do with melanin. I don't know anything beyond that. Um, that's, that's something to ask a qualified life scientist and not your pastor. <laughs> we did not cover the origins of human skin diversity in my PhD program. I'm sorry. But, but, at, the, but at the time that it was written, there probably wasn't cultural diversity, maybe. No, there was definitely cultural diversity. I mean, so I think... Um, so th this passage, um, so it's written much later than the actual creation of the world, right? And, you know, Israel is one culture among many cultures, and part of what they're trying to do, I think, is say something distinctive about the Hebrew God. Um, you know, because there, there are other cultures that have other gods and other languages and things like that, so I think... By the time they're writing this, they're definitely, they are familiar with different cultures that have different religions, different ways of life. I don't know if they have the, you know, they don't have the full-blown heading of cultural diversity that we have in 2023, but I think they've wandered around the world and bumped into it enough. Josh. I've read some things that, you know, sometimes we read this so literally that we assume that everyone would sort of tie back to Adam or Eve, that everyone is a descendant of those two, but then there's nothing to say that God couldn't have created multiple people. And so if you think about different ethnicities or different people in different lands, that maybe they didn't, maybe some of them were created like Adam and Eve were created and not descendants of Adam and Eve. Sure, that, uh, that's certainly one possible explanation for it, yeah. Um. Yeah, it's always, I always laugh because the Sunday school question, so like Adam and Eve, you know, Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, we're not there yet. Next chapter, we meet Adam and Eve. They get thrown out of the Garden of Eden, right? And then they have, they have children. They have Cain and Abel. And then Cain and Abel get married. And the, Cain and Abel, they're like, well, they married and had kids. And the, the Sunday school question is, who did they marry, right? Where did these other people come from? And I think it's, it's one of those things that's interesting to wonder about. It, it also, again, it's the sort of thing of like, it's the sort of thing where the people who handed down Genesis to us <laughs> weren't interested in answering that question, right? They had their eyes on the story that tells us about God. Um, yeah. Frank. I had a thought, uh, you know, scientists would tell us the Earth's four and a half billion years old or something. Mm -hmm. My explanation is, Okay, so God lives outside of our universe. He's outside of time. When he says a day, he could have meant a billion years our time. Who knows? Right. It really doesn't matter. However, if we evolve from very primitive life forms, when did we get a soul? Ooh. If we went from gorillas to humans, there's various pre-humans, if you will. And I don't know the answer to that other than maybe at some point God said, okay, they've evolved enough that now we can give them a soul. I don't know. That's a really interesting question to everyone. Yeah, Frank's question was, if, if you assume an evolutionary story about human origins, that humans evolved from earlier sorts of primates, at what point did hu humanity become invested with a soul or what we think of as the soul? And was, was there a point in the evolutionary process where God was like, bing, they've crossed the line and now they have souls? I've, that's a really interesting question, Frank. There's probably a great doctoral dissertation somewhere that I've never read about that very topic. Well, don't worry. Many of them are not true. That does not stop many people from writing those. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's a subset, I think, of the larger question of one of the things you see in this chapter is human beings are part of creation so they're created in six days just like everything else, and yet they're different from the rest of creation as well. They're made in the image and likeness of God. 
And so we have this similarity to the rest of creation and also a difference. And when we, one area of overlap, when you, when you look at natural science, is hu humans are very much animals, right? You know, we, at this point in our history, we can trace fairly convincingly, uh, you know, relations to hominids and other forms of primate life. And then, but like in many ways, we're animals, right? We're mammals. We share things in common with other mammals. And yet, we're also totally different. And this is something you see in Genesis 1 and also in Genesis 2 in a different way. Um, and it's this very profound mystery. So I, I think that's a great question. I wish I knew better how to answer it, but I think it's a really valuable one. We share most of our genes with many other animals. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. We did evolve from, oh well, yeah. presumably we did. Genetic, right, that's one, something I've heard as well, is genetically speaking, we share a lot of our makeup with other forms of primate life. But boy, you know, we may be 80% similar, but that 20% sure makes a difference, doesn't it, right? Um, yeah, wonderful question. What else strikes you about this passage? Yeah. I didn't think of it earlier, but why did we have to have dominion over everything? Oh, yeah, sure. Did anyone else have a different translation of the word dominion in your Bible? Rule. Subdue. Ooh, that's interesting. What, what version are you using? The NIV. Okay. Subdue. Okay, we've got a couple subdues. Anyone else have, any, have anything interesting? So, um, your question was, why do we need to have dominion? Um, I don't know if it's a question of need. I mean, what, uh, let me turn the question around. What do you think, what do you think God might have had in mind? Oh, wow, I never know what he's got in mind. <laughs> right. Fair. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Basically, I'm thinking not so much dominion, but the ability to control our world, to, to change our world, to uh, control is probably a bad word, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, reshape, however sure. you want to put it. Govern our world might be another word in, along that line. Yeah, Beth. Um, my explanation said that God entrusted humans to Ooh, custodian is a good one, right? I mean, the, the other word, right, is steward. So that's, and of course, that's a biblical word. It often comes up in the, in the context of money, but the idea of being a steward, right? It's the same idea with money that it is with the earth. Like God has given us certain financial resources, but they're not ours ultimately. It's our job to be in charge of them, but they still belong to God. And I think you could say something similar about the earth, right? That God has given, in Genesis 1, God gives the earth to human beings and says, okay, you're in charge. Don't crash the car, right? So I think it's, um, I think it's meant to be this awe-inspiring responsibility rather than a sense of you get to boss everybody around. So, you know... Becca and I have three kids, and our oldest is 11, and she's not quite ready to babysit the two younger ones, but she's getting there really quickly. And one of the ways you know, I think, a kid is ready to babysit younger children is when they understand that their job is not just to boss around the younger kids when mom and dad are away, right? When they understand, oh my gosh, the, I have this responsibility, and, and I am in charge of protecting them and caring for them and making sure they're okay while mom and dad are away, then maybe they're ready to actually do it. So I think that's, what, that's how I want to read this passage. I think at times in the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, it has been read as authorizing a very exploitative attitude towards the world, right? That plants and animals and the natural world is kind of just there to serve us and if we wanna chop down all those trees, we can, right? Or if we wanna strip mine that mountain, we can. But I, I think that's a, that's a mistake. I don't think that's there in the text. You know, Eugene Peterson, the message, actually uses the word responsible. You, you've been Good. using that word yeah. quite often when you've been talking about this. And, um, you know, he does not go to the dominion or rule. Yeah. 
keep right. it responsible. Yeah, sure, sure. How many, of, how many of you have heard of Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible called The Message? Many of us, not all of us. So I, I recommend it to you if you get stuck on a particular passage or you're looking for a fresh gloss. It's about two-thirds brilliant and one-third baffling, in my opinion. And whenever you read it, you kind of roll the dice. But two times out of three, he's going to really give you a fresh take on what you're reading. And one out of three times, you're like, okay, thank you, Eugene. I appreciate you. And you close the Bible and you just read a regular translation. Okay. Anyone else have something, have a question or a thought you want to share about this passage? Sandy. What do you think they mean by when God says, let us? Sure. In our image. Yeah. So the question was, what, you know, what does it mean when uh, it says, let us make humanity in our image? Is that verse 26? So, yeah, that's a famous crux of interpretation. Um, the answer that I've been taught is that it refers to what we call the divine council. So in the ancient world, the God was pictured as much like a monarch sitting on a throne in, in a heavenly realm. And like a monarch, he would have a court um, with nobles and hangers on and people assisting in his rule of the world except instead of being human beings, it was semi-divine angelic beings. Cherubim and seraphim and angels and archangels and things like that, sort of semi-divine beings, that's what I mean. So when he says, let us do this, he's talking to them. So we're, we're going to make, again, this goes to the mystery of what sort of creature the human being is. We're going to make humanity in our image. We're going to make somebody that's like us in certain crucial respects, except not exactly like us because they're further down on the ladder and far more fallible and flawed and prone to sin. Okay. So what I'm going to do is take you through a couple of points that um, I think are really helpful for understanding this passage. Um, and we can talk about those. So the first thing I want to say, um, if you had to guess, first thing I want to say is this. If you had to guess, how do you think this story in Genesis 1 and 2 differs from creation stories found in other ancient cultures? Maybe the answer to that question is Dave, I've never read any creation stories of other ancient cultures, and that's fine if you have no idea at all, but you give me a wild guess. Yeah. Sabbath. Sabbath. That's, that's a really interesting one. I hadn't thought about that. Yes, I think that's probably true, that there's an insistence at the end that God rests, rests from his labors. We can put rests in quotation marks. Um, and that this is a custom that needs to be passed on to the Hebrew community. I think that's probably unique. Anything else that, that might be unique or stand out between this story and others? Yeah. I think there are, there are stories with cultures where the nature has a lot more to do with it. Mm -hmm. How so? Um, there's usually an animal that has a great deal of strength and meaning to the people. Sure. Um, that's about as much as I can think of right now, but I know in the Native American culture, nature comes into it a great deal. Yeah, sure. So that's, that's probably a good counterpoint, actually. So part of what I want to emphasize today are some of the ways that this story is unique. So the Hebrews were not unique in having a story about creation. Many, many ancient Near Eastern cultures did. So if you look at, you know, the Babylonians or the ancient Greeks or the ancient Egyptians, they all have stories about God or gods, how the world came to be, what sort of creatures human beings are, etc., etc. What's unique about Genesis 1 and 2 is, is the character of the Hebrew God and the nature of the human person he creates. Um, other ancient creation stories were unabashedly polytheistic. Do you know what polytheistic means? So more than one God. And the God of the Bible is the only God there is. 
So right away, we see one very profound difference. So in Egypt, for instance, you had this different set of gods that would quarrel over legitimacy. So first you had Osiris and Seth, and then a little bit later in the kind of cosmic soap opera, you had Seth and Horus fighting with each other. Anytime you have polytheism, there's also the possibility that the gods are gonna fight and that this fighting will affect you in some negative way. Um, the deities would often contend for prominence or even survival. Do you see that in Genesis 1? No. There's, ju there's just the one God and his divine counsel, and he's creating the world and he's doing things, right? Bing, bang, boom. There's, there's, no, there's no rival to him. There's no one else. Um, let me read you this passage. So this is from the Schlim book that I talked about earlier. Um, Matthew Schlim, This Strange and Sacred Scripture. So you guys have heard of Babylon, right? Babylon was in modern-day Iraq, near the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. It was a, 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 um, a long-standing rival to Israel. Of course, they famously eventually will conquer Israel. That's much later in the Old Testament. Um, we're going to talk about that in a couple months. But they have this story of creation. They have a creation account, and it's called the Enuma Elish. Um, and it's completely wild. So I'm just going to read you an excerpt from this Babylonian creation account, okay? Um, so there's a, what happens in the creation account is that there is a god called Marduk who challenges the sea goddess Tiamat in battle. And he's, he says, Stand thou up, that I and thou meet in single combat. When Tiamat heard this, she was like one possessed. She took leave of her senses. In fury, Tiamat cried out. They strove in single combat, locked in battle. The Lord spread out his net to enfold her. The evil wind which followed behind, he let loose in her face. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove in the evil wind that she closed not her lips. As the fierce winds charged her belly, her body was distended and her mouth was wide open. He released the arrow. It tore her belly. It cut through her insides, splitting the heart. Having, can you imagine a fourth grade boy reading this? He would be so excited, right? It cut through her insides, splitting the heart. Having thus subdued her, he extinguished her life. He cast down her carcass to stand upon it. The Lord trod on the legs of Tiamat with his unsparing mace. He crushed her skull. And then Schlim, Schlim says, in what follows, Marduk slices this monster of a deity in two, making the world as we know it out of her corpse. Woo, right? So, that's all a little outlandish from our 21st century suburban point of view. But think for a second. Imagine if that was your sacred story. Imagine if that was your understanding of how the world came to be. How, think for a second. Try and put yourselves in the, in the feet of a 10th century BC Babylonian. How would your perspective be different on the world if life was created by two gods fighting and then the victorious God makes this world out of the corpse of the deceased God. Jim's had his mind blown. He can't, he can't countenance anything further. I understand. I see you. It's pretty wild. A violent world. That's exactly right. Yes. So Christianity and, and Judaism before it insist that this world is made by the sovereign will of a good and loving God. God does not need to fight anybody or overcome some malign power in order to create the world. So there is this deep peace at the heart of what is. And when we experience violence and disorder in the world, that is not an indication of God's will, but a departure from it. So, 
you can see the, the, this is what I mean when I say, you know, what matters is not that the Hebrews had a creation story, but what happens in it, the sort of creation story they had. That's really important. Um, how does God create in Genesis 1? When he wants to create things, what does he do? He speaks. He speaks. He just, he says, light, and there's light, and stars, and there's stars. So this is another place where you see the sovereignty and power of the Hebrew God. He does not have, like pagan deities, he does not have a restricted area of competence. So anytime you've got more than one God, you have to have a division of labor, right? So think of the Greek gods where you've got the god of forges and fire and blacksmithing, and then you've got Zeus, the god of thunder, and then you've got Ares, the god of war, right? And they, they all have their little bit to play. The Hebrew God isn't like that. Everything belongs to the Hebrew God. <laughs> he is omnicompetent. And that's what you see here, is his word is effective and powerful. And he is sovereign even over time. So God creates the sun and stars and the movement of the world that lead to what we think of as time. So um, this is one really significant area of the story that sets apart the Hebrew narrative from other ones. It affirms God's, God as the only God, and it affirms God's power and uniqueness. So many scholars think that this part of Genesis may come from the time when the Hebrews were in exile in Babylon. So why would they set down this story during that period in time? So some people think this story comes from the Babylonian exile, right? So the Jews get conquered by Babylon, dragged off into exile in a foreign country, oppressed by a bunch of pagans. And it it may be around that time that they begin to tell this story, or they they are divinely led to begin to tell this story, or that they set this story down in writing. Why would they do that then? It's a rallying cry for our race, for our culture. Yeah, right? I think it's a, it, is a, it is a rallying cry for, certainly for their culture, which was in danger of being extinguished, but also a statement of faith in their God that even though they had been defeated militarily, even though they had been dragged off to a foreign land, even though they were oppressed and made to be servants in a foreign culture, their God was sovereign and powerful. Okay, questions about this? Jeff. Um, So why does God allow different interpretations of creation? Ooh. That's a good question. Why does God allow different interpretations of creation? So if this interpretation of creation is the true one, and I think it is, why does God allow other ones? That's a real thinker, Jeff. Um, I think part of the answer has to do with, part of it has to do with human nature, that God is Um, God's creating a world in which he desires a free, authentic response from human people. And this creates the possibility of people responding in ways that are less than appropriate or misguided. So I think God is leaving some room for people to respond authentically and also inauthentically. I also think it has something to do with the power of sin, right? That um, what we see here in Genesis 1 is a world where creation is intimately connected to God, and that bond has not yet been severed. And one of the things you see in Genesis, not in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 3 next week, is that that bond does get severed, 
and we kind of lose our spiritual radar to a certain extent. And so, you know, ancient Babylon told a story where violence and military conflict was at the heart of the world. And some people still tell a story like that today. And I think there's, there is an element of sin, alienation, spiritual bondage, whatever you want to call it, at work there. That's a really deep and profound question, and I don't know nearly as much about that as I would like. Dave, uh, an observation on that. Um, God created humankind in his image, mm -hmm. but he also provided humankind with free will. Right. And what evolves out of free will are differences, and those differences could be as important as differences with respect to what you believe about the creation story, to uh, differences in what we experience today in, in different denominations of Christianity. Sir? Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that part of what's going on in the diversity of human religious plurality and the diversity of stories, even about something as basic as creation, has to do with God creating human beings in such a way that they're free. I think that's, that's very basic, yeah. Um, let me keep moving. I wanna talk about one other aspect of this story, and then we're gonna talk about Genesis 2. As usual, we have too many good thoughts, too much to say, not enough time. Um, the other thing I wanna say is, okay, look again at Genesis 1. What do the various acts of creation have in common? God says they're good. That's exactly right. That's one thing. So God says they're all good. I'm thinking of something else. That one, that's also correct. Um, every day, God says, let there be, let there be. He creates by speaking. That's another thing they all have in common. So I'm looking for something that, that, that is found in the different acts of creation that's not, they're all good, and is not, they're all spoken. Uh-huh. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, that there, there's a step-by-step -step process of days and different things happening in each day. I'm still hankering for a specific thing. Yes, Beth. It's always a dichotomy. It's always a dichotomy. Yeah, there's light and dark, day and night, land and water. That's true. That's also true. Were you going to? Well, I was just going to say, after he created, he said, it, and it was so. Like I, just like I said I was going to do, it yep. was so. That's true. Yeah. Um, as usual, I have a specific thing in mind, and I'm subjecting you to 20 questions until you guess what's in Dave's brain. Let me just say it. Right. Trying to guess what's in my brain is a very frustrating exercise. God creates order out of chaos. God creates order out of chaos. So look again at Genesis 1.1, the very first verse in the whole Bible. Um, I don't know what yours says. My New Revised Standard says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. So that formless void um, is a Hebrew phrase. It's very evocative. It's tohu vabohu. Have any of you heard of the tohu vabohu before? No. So it, it, formless void is a good translation. It kind of means like dark nothing, nothingness, chaos, confusion, emptiness, waste place. That's what tohu vabohu means. So God takes that, and by the end of Genesis 1, he has turned it into this marvelous habitat for the human beings he has created to dwell there. So in large part, God's creative work is the, the art of um, creating order out of chaos. When I was in seminary, we had um, Halloween costume contests, 
and they were super dorky. They were my favorite thing ever because people would always dress up as characters from the Bible or from theology, and I loved it. And one year, my friend Trajan, who was a very smart dude, dressed up and he put on this long billowing black cape and he covered his face up and uh, they said, Trajan, who are you for Halloween? And he said, I am the Tohu Vabohu. And it got a huge round of applause because seminarians are very nerdy and we needed to get out more. But the point is, uh, that always drove home for me what the Tohu Vabohu is. So a big part of God's creative work is um, bringing order out of chaos. Okay. Think about the contrast with other deities, particularly in polytheistic worldviews in the ancient world. So um, think about the God, so we've already heard about um, Marduk and Tiamat. So in order for their worlds to be created, there was this primal fight, primal struggle that introduces chaos and the world is born out of that. The Hebrew God is doing almost the exact opposite thing. He's starting with chaos and he's bringing order out of it. You might think about the wonderful, amusing stories about the Greek god Zeus. Zeus is always falling in love with human women. He's very immature. He's like a 20-something who needs like, some responsibility in his life. So he's always sitting up in his heavenly palace and he sees a beautiful woman and he's like, oh, I like her. And then he disguises himself and goes down to earth and marries and beds these women and begets these demigod offspring. He creates chaos by his behavior. The Hebrew God does the opposite. The Hebrew God fights chaos and creates order. So look again at your Bibles now. How many of God's creative deeds can be interpreted as creating order? So look at the six days. Yes. Eugene Peterson, again, has an interesting thing here. <laughs> it's not, he doesn't say it's order out of chaos. Right. He says it's everything out of nothing. Everything out of nothing. That's interesting as well. Because this is the words he says. He says, earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. Sure. Which is nothing. Sure. I, I love that. That's wonderful. So look at, look at this and see how many, how many different passages are about separating or creating some sort of boundary. If you, if you find a, a place where that's relevant, just read it out. Light and darkness, right? Separating the water from the waters, right? So that's verse six. So God creates a sky, a firmament that separates heaven and earth. So verse nine, God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So God's, it's not just all one gigantic ocean, there's water and dry land. Verse 14, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. So, all, right, so this verse 14 is a famous crux of interpretation. So how can you have day, days are built around a 24-hour cycle keyed to the setting of the sun, which happens because the earth rotates around the sun, right? You guys all know this. You can't have days before you have a sun. So... Christian thinkers have long scratched their heads and said, well, wait a second, what sort of days are these? What's going on? But the amazing thing that's happening, right, is from this point of view, from the point of view that we were just talking about, God is separating the day from the night. He is creating the order that all of us, he's creating days and nights. He is creating the order that all of us use to frame our lives. Every, all of us, go, whatever any of us do, we all go through the day, we get up in the morning, we live our day, we go home, we eat dinner, it's bedtime, right? Unless you're a night nurse or something like that, and then you have a hard life. God creates that, right? He creates that order. Imagine how crazy life would be if everything was just one long day. We can't imagine it because we take it for granted. That's a fascinating thought, sorry, just, but I mean, I'd never really thought about it that way, but there is no creation. They're not like you're creating two things. They are the same thing. You're just 
You're assigning a value to it because our night is someone else's day, their day is, you know what I mean? Like there, there, there is no creation of it. Uh, there's no creation of what? Night and day is, is, is relative, sure. right? There is, like you don't create night. Right. Or you don't create day. Sure. It's all, it's all happening at the same time. Sure. Right. right. Yep, that, uh, that's a good point as well. That night and day are relative to the location of the human being that's experiencing them, right? And if you, you know, if you get on a plane flight in Chicago around sunset and you fly west, you'll have this amazing experience where the sun sets for two full hours. Um, the point is not a scientific claim about the relationship of night and day. The, Right, it's exactly, it's, it's order. It is God is making a world for us to live in that makes sense for us. Yeah. Um, does all this, are, are you tracking with me so far? Okay, I haven't left anyone behind in a morass of confusion. I don't wanna leave you behind in the tohu vabohu. Okay. Um, let's, what time is it? Oh, perfect. Okay, let's look at Genesis 2. So this was not part of my sermon on Sunday. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I'm going to read this again out loud um, and then turn to a neighbor and discuss it, okay? So here's what I have. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So turn to a neighbor, talk about what jumps out at you, strikes you, and what questions you have. We'll come back together in a minute. All right, let's come back together. So what questions do you have?
What jumps out at you about this passage? What do you want to know? Why are there two different versions? Why are there two different versions? That's a great question. We're going to talk about that in a second. That's the first, the next slide after this. Randall? I, I got a little bit confused here because <laughs> it appeared to me as if when this, when this was being written, it was almost like an expansion of what was going on during that sixth day because during the sixth day, God created sure. humankind in his image, yeah. man and woman, or, you know, and, and this is kind of a, a story within the story for the sixth uh -huh. day. So th this bears on the, the previous question. So let me just go to that now. So I, I think a consensus, um, a consensus is that Genesis 1 and 2 are two different accounts of the creation that are placed lovingly, reverently placed together in the book of Genesis. So um, rather than being written sort of consecutively all by one person, they, they probably come from different pens, but within the same ethos and are placed together. And then for a long time in the history of Christian thought, people just read them as though they were a consecutive narrative, which you can kind of do, right? You can kind of, you kind of, kind of say, well, this is fine, right? So first you get, you know, the humans on the sixth day, and then here's, here's the sixth day in more detail, right? What, what are the problems with reading it that way? Where's the seventh day? Right, so Genesis 2 doesn't tell us a story about the seventh day, Whereas that's the, so part of the problem, right, is that Genesis 1 ends with the climax of the Sabbath. And from the perspective of Genesis 1, there's nothing else to say, right? We, made, we, we went all the way around the bases and we made it back to home base. We scored the run. All our work is done at the end of Genesis 1. So that's one question. There's no Sabbath. What order are things created in in Genesis 2? Birds and animals are created. In, in Genesis 2, they're, they're created after Adam, whereas in Genesis 1, do the animals come first or the humans come first? The animals come first. So they tell us a this is the kind of thing, every theologian is just a precocious Sunday school student that grew up and was able to unleash their curiosity in a more benevolent direction, right? These are the sorts of questions that give Sunday school teachers gray hairs, but they're very important if you sort of use the right, um, if you have the right perspective on it. So Genesis 1 and 2 tell us stories that differ slightly, but crucially in detail about the order of in which things are created. So in Genesis 2, who's created first, man or woman? Man, right? And woman comes later. In Genesis 1, who's created first, man or woman? Same time, right? Genesis 1 says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. Boom, done. Genesis 2 tells us something slightly different. That's not, that's not a huge problem. I'm not telling you this to be like, whoa, this is a huge unsolved problem. It's only a problem when, as sometimes happens in the history of Christian interpretation, the difference between these two gives you some anxiety, and you say, no, we need to make it line up perfectly and there have to be no seams or difficulties or anything. So is it my understanding that Moses was the author of Genesis? So th that, is, um, that is definitely a possibility. It's not the point of view I adhere to. So the reason people ascribe um, authorship of Genesis to Moses is because that's, for one reason, that's what the Bible describes it as, right? The first five books of the Bible are called the books of Moses. And I, I know at least at the end of Deuteronomy, it sort of describes the death of Moses and the conclusion of the five books. And it says, Here are the end, here's the end of the five books of Moses. So here, but here's what I'm getting at. Yeah. In my NIV, it's suggesting Moses as the same author. Sure. But by this interpretation, we're, it's suggesting that Genesis 1 was written by one author and Genesis 2 then was just another author. Is that... 
Yes. That's, uh, that's, that's what I'm suggesting, yeah. So I think, part, and, and this bears on complicated issues about who wrote the first five books of the Bible that we'll have a chance to, we're, this is gonna be with us for a while as we work through the first five. So the, the generally accepted alternative to the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament is that there, um, there are four different strands. So four different, um, four different authors or four different like teams that are working and composing different bits of those first five books that eventually weave them together into the beautiful Pentateuch we have today. That's called the documentary hypothesis. Um, it's a very boring name for a very simple idea. So what, for instance, what you'll see when we get to like Deuteronomy is there's a, there's a skeptical voice that starts to appear in Deuteronomy. And um, he's very distinctive. We don't know if it was a he or a she, but scholars call that voice the Deuteronomist. And it's, that is basically a person who is writing about Israel from the perspective of the exile and saying, how the heck did Israel get into this mess? What did we do wrong? And sort of looking back at documents from Israel's earlier history and saying, oh, here's, here's you can look back and see, here's where some of the problems began. And look a little later, and then there's, there was another trouble spot. So you, um, when you scrutinize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the idea is that these, this four-part harmony begins to emerge, and that the differences are significant enough to validate and sustain the idea that there are different perspectives, different people at work writing it. Um, do you have to believe that? No, it's, I think it's correct, but that and $6 will get you a latte. Matthew. So uh, um, to, to answer that question, I, I, I took a religions course um, and we talked a lot about this whole creations thing. But, um, and the professor I had had made a point to say that at some point, historically, Moses got credit for writing everything when what he should have credit for was kind of hitting reset, like getting everything back together. Because that's what part of the, the whole 40 years in exile he was doing was conglomerating everything that came before because he basically was starting everything over. So that's, that's where, if you're looking for a point of confusion, where he may have, like, where some books like NIV and say, this is where Moses wrote all of, all of those first five books. It's, it's more of he should get credit for getting everything back in order to then hmm. carry forward. Thank you, Matt. Maybe he was the publisher, not the writer. <laughs> Very possible. Maybe he was um, the inspiration or the, he was certainly the one that like, he is the paradigm of Judaism, right? He's, he is the lawgiver. So he plays a very crucial role. The question is in what way he might have been involved in the composition and collection of the books that form our Bible today. Frank. There was no written word when Adam and Eve were created. Correct. It was thousands of years later they were writing this down. Yes. It's the inspired word of God, not to dictate the word of God. There well could have been different opinions. Mm -hmm. Yep, I, I agree with that, right? The inspired word of God, not the dictated word of God. So one of the things you discover when you start poking around the Bible is you can see, I call it the human fingerprints in the Bible. So the Bible is God's word comes to us through people. Just like when you were a little kid, many of you were raised in the church, you went to Sunday school and God first came to you through your parents and Sunday school teachers who told you about Jesus, helped you to read the Bible in the right way, helped you learn how to pray. The Bible is the same thing. It's God coming to us through people. And what it's, it was not dictated. So what you see is evidence of the creation and composition and even editing of the Bible we have today. Does not make it one whit less God's word to us. Just helps us understand it and interpret it better. Okay, let me, let's talk about wordplay. 
and then we'll wrap up. So, um, we'll focus on Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Um, look at your Bibles, and what does it say... What does it say in verses 7? In verse 7. So in mine it says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Does anyone have anything significantly different in your translation? No? So two things to see there. The first is the same tension we talked about in Genesis 1, where like human beings are higher, nobler, different than the rest of creation. And yet, we are also way lower than God and angels, <laughs> right? We're in this amazing position where we can reach the highest heights of poetry and music and art and religion and beauty and self-sacrifice, and yet we're also capable of very brutal dog-eat-dog behavior just like animals are. That's the first thing to see here, right? You're like the, the man, Adam, is created out of dirt, dust. Whenever every Lent, when we say, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return, that's a reference to this. And yet God breathes his spirit into him. So the, the Hebrew, you, some of you may know this, the Hebrew word for wind is ruach, and it, the word ruach, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same. There's, it was the same word, right? So when someone dies in the Old Testament, it says he gave up his spirit or he breathed his last. It's kind of the same thing. So God's breathing this breath or this spirit into the human being to bring them to life, to animate them. He's putting a little bit of divine spark, divine stamp on them. And there's this duality to human beings. The other thing that's interesting is um, there's a lot of wordplay going on here. So Adam, um, the word man or human is Adam. So the man is Adam and he is formed out of the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground is Adama. So the Adam is formed out of the Adama. It's like saying, God created an earthling out of earth. It's that sort of wordplay. Similarly, Eden is a proper name that is more than just a proper name. Eden means, it has a meaning in ancient Hebrew. It means bliss, delight, luxury. So we tend to think of this story as, oh, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden until they committed sin and then they got thrown out, which is a true version of it. But the Hebrew teaches us, okay, so it's man living in the Garden of Delight, which, again, tells us something about what's going on here. I have so much fantastic material and nowhere to stop. The last thing I want to say is, um, okay. So look at verse nine. Uh, actually, look at verse eight. So this is two, verse eight. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So Adam is not a native of the garden of Eden. He is he is an immigrant to the Garden of Eden. He is uh, a carpetbagger in the Garden of Eden. He is relocated there. God puts him there. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Um, and then in verse 10, continuing a little further, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. Uh, how many of you have been to the Middle East? A few of us. How many of you know it to be a land where everywhere you turn, it's overflowing with gardens and rivers? N not accurate, right? Gardens and rivers are very highly prized. There are oases which are jealously guarded. Water rights are a big deal. The, the point 
The point to see is this theme of God's lavish generosity is everywhere in Genesis 1 and 2. And you see it even in this slightly different, slightly separate creation account. God creates a very lush and lavish home for the man and puts him in it. What we're going to see next week is the man and the woman's inability to accept (laughs) the gift God has given them. Their, um, yeah, the, the violation of the proper boundaries that characterize that home. And that's what gets the whole story of salvation history started. But the, the note to see here is the, the beauty and the wonder of the home he's placed them in. So I'll stop there for tonight. Please stick around if you want to talk and have questions. I want to let you know next week when we're talking about um, Genesis 3, the fall and sin, I'm going to be away um, for some uh, Sabbath time myself. My friend Alex Massad who's um, an attendee of this church and a wonderful Christian, good scholar, is going to come and teach this class for me. He's a professor of theology at Wheaton, so he's a sharp guy and has lots of wonderful things to say. So I hope you'll come back and welcome him warmly next week, and I will see you in two weeks. Thanks. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.